Sometimes when we're young in our faith, we're more judgmental. And then as we grow in our faith, as we learn more, we become more open-minded. Mm-hmm. And I'd like to think that some of these people are kind of like babies. This person is wrong. This person is wrong. This person can't yeah. do this. And the judgmental aspects. And I think that sometimes that ultimately takes over. Who am I to get up and judge somebody else when I'm a sinner myself? I mean, it wouldn't it be easier if if this was a dualistic world? This is Joey Svensson, by the way, in the middle of a of a rant. Like seriously, this this is not a dualistic world. It's just not. I truly believe that if we could start really acknowledging this, that people aren't dualistic and always consider people as individuals with individual stories, we'll start going in the right direction. Instead, we see a bumper sticker and decide exactly who that person is. We hear about their religious affiliation. We know exactly how that person thinks and what they think about this and that. Well, it doesn't work when you see a big old truck downtown Charleston sporting a big old gay pride flag next to a big old vote for Donald Trump flag. And yes, I have seen that through my girls into a mental turmoil. They didn't know what to do with it. And I loved that lesson to them. So check out some of these situations that I have walked through recently. So you guys know of my battle with cynicism when it comes to evangelicalism and big churches and and all of that. At Seacoast, we get together as a big old staff, 200 plus people, big old Seacoast building and big old stage and big old lights and all of that. Everything's toned down because it's just us as a staff, but still I can sometimes get distracted and I can sometimes have some judgmental thoughts. And honestly, all of that stuff is is good within reason, but (laughs) the spirit was there. So if I walk into a situation having to spend my energy on cynicism, and yet out of nowhere, I feel moved by the presence of God, it just didn't allow me to be so simplistic in my thinking of the current situation I was in. But then damn Hollywood pastor, some guy visiting, I think our staff from another state walks in with the Hollywood haircut and Hollywood sunglasses. I'm like, damn, dude, we're indoors. There's no sun. And then my cynicism just overloads again. And I'm back. (laughs) I'm back to being like, well, I feel the spirit. But you see that guy? Well, then our lead pastor gets up on stage, talks about a warming shelter that we have provided for the Charleston community when it drops to a certain degree and the restaurant in downtown North Charleston that basically was going to close because they just couldn't withstand the COVID crisis. Business was down and they couldn't keep their doors open. So Seacoast gave them $50,000 to keep their business afloat. It's like then I'm in... I hear that stuff and I'm right back to, oh yeah, it's not simple. It's not dualistic. I want to personally invite myself back into humanizing people and know who the hardest people for me to humanize. It's people in evangelicalism. Some people, uh, other people, they are humanized to me because they're friends. I know them personally. But Hollywood celebrity sunglasses in a building pastor. I have a hard time humanizing him. Not liars, not drug dealers, no kind of political affiliation, even if it's a radical. All of those people are easier for me to humanize. But I have not been humanizing pastors. I mean, I I say a lot of times on here that I really think we're all doing the best we can with what we have. Oh, but not pastors, not those guys. They're not. The other day, I met with some elders at another church. We were sitting there talking about an unrelated... There's no point in getting into it with you, but the type of elders and the type of church they're a part of, it's like the you know anointing people with oil, and that's where, that's where I came from, my background. Super, super spiritual and kind of weird, and maybe even very dualistic in their thinking, and maybe even judgmental. Like That's kind of how I had them boxed in. And then I sit with them and they start sharing some of the deep trials their marriage is facing after like 30 years of marriage, just right out there telling me stuff that humanizes them. They're not putting up any kind of front. And then I share something as a pastor, uh, call it a big mistake I've made in the last year. They didn't bat an eye and we all encouraged each other. And there was even some swearing at the table. It was like, man, we're all humans. Holy cow. And it always reminds me, why? Why do I take one label, someone who goes to an evangelical church, and then I make this 
categorical judgment in my head. I'm at an evangelical church. Why there, are there not other people that think similar as I? Then a few days ago, I met with a couple of elders who I am very, very close to, two women, sharing some breakfast and just catching up. I said something to the point where some of the things that I've walked through recently, I realize, and this is, this is a tough one for me to say on here, I've realized probably for most of my life from a spiritual a- aspect, I've always thought thought of myself as a little bit better than everybody else. I always have thought of myself a little bit better than everyone else, maybe a little bit more intuitive, maybe having more insight into hypocrisy, less of a hypocrite, not dualistic in my thinking. So that right there puts me ahead of a lot of folks. And I was sharing this with these ladies who were both 60 plus. (laughs) I told them that I just realized I'm not really better than other people. And you should have seen the reaction on their faces. They both put their heads down kind of in a snicker, but it was in a snicker of, yes, been there and done that. And we've known this about ourselves for like 25 years also. I love these ladies so much. They bring me such life. They're family. I met them all at an evangelical church that I love and call family. One of those ladies is listening right now. I love you, Miss Maddie. I actually reached out to the author of this book to pretty much get his permission with the name the episode, what I named it, because the conversation's foundation is the book that he wrote that you need to go buy and check out. It's a history of Africans and African Americans and just the influence and strength that they represent, especially for the United States of America. But a theme that just started to illuminate the conversation was canceling a racist even isn't even a great thing. And you know, the foundation of that you know, the, the foundation of a non-canceling mentality to a human being, you know where that comes from? For me, it comes from my faith and how Jesus carried himself. That's where it comes from for me. Hope you enjoy this conversation. I hope it is as life-giving, brother, as it was to me. I hope it speaks to your heart, your heart of hearts. I hope it speaks to your heart of hearts. So one of your hearts, the main heart, the heart of all of your hearts. <laughs> Patrons, thank you so much for investing in this podcast, something that you obviously enjoy and get a lot out of. I want to read some comments from some of our listeners about this purity culture episode we did that surrounded the the male perspective of it all. He said the discussion this is Mike Spooner, the discussion in your words were very healing and encouraging to me the way you described how you think that God views sex and how he sees it when we screw up or aren't ready for it. Even if I don't know if I believe in God anymore, I appreciated that image of the father with his hand on his son's shoulder. It was interesting hearing everyone's different experiences with discovering whacking it. I said whacking it. He said masturbation. It's news to me that some people don't discover this feature until puberty. For me, I've been doing it for as long as I can remember with no connection to sex in the beginning. But I felt bad about it before I even knew what it was I was doing. Probably I was discouraged from doing it at some point. That's just a piece of his email. Here is another one from Bo Carnes. I'm doing well. I enjoyed the recent conversation. Purity culture screwed up the guys too. I have three sons. My oldest is 10. Very soon I'm going to have to start teaching him more about sexuality, but I'm still figuring out what to say. I've had a lot of people talking about how purity culture had it wrong, but I don't have a clear idea what I should suggest to my kids is the better way of doing things. Thank you guys for writing. I love it. If you want to be a patron of this podcast, every single month, some of your money will go to developing countries for very specific great need for specific people and or their families. We also have a podcast feed just for you called PWNA Rapture. There's exclusive content that only you will hear, but there's also the opportunity of hearing all of the content before it hits the main feed publicly. These are all unedited. You get to <laughs> unedited, unedited and you get to hear the before and after discussions and and all of that, the inappropriate stuff that I decide to delete, which isn't. Isn't often. We've got a lot of new things coming. We're going to have a community for parents, a community for spouses. And I love you all. Hope you guys enjoy the show.
And where are you, Carrie? I'm in San Antonio, Texas. All right. But I don't have a Texan accent. I have a Virginian accent. Gotcha. So you from the South? I'm a Southern. I'm closer closer to where you are. You're a South Carolinian. We're in good company, Robbie. We got a Southern boy here. (laughs) (laughs) Virginia. Um, And I'm from the rural part of Virginia, too. Like farm boy. Not too many of us black farm boys, you know, anymore. (laughs) You know, everybody thinks that I'm from the hood, you know, and that's not, you know, it's weird that all of my students are like, so you grew up in an urban area, Dr. Latimer. I'm like, no, I grew up on a farm riding tractors. Yeah, (laughs) yeah. Are there black folk that do that? I'm like, yeah, a couple generations, almost all black folk did that. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Well, Robbie and I, we're both, we're both from... Charleston, South Carolina. Uh-huh. And it's weird. I know Robbie knows my heart with all of this. I hate even I hate even articulating it this way, but the history of African Americans, slavery, civil rights, all of it is just so interesting to me. And I yeah. I hate the word interesting because that just seems like, oh yeah, what what everybody went through is so interesting, but it's in a very burdensome way. So Twelve Years a Slave, the movie. Yeah. One of my favorite movies, hardest movie to watch. I like Django Unchained better because justice is served, sort of thing. Yeah, justice was definitely served. <laughs> right. Robbie and I, or, or I'll just speak for myself right now. I grew up in a in a time period where my parents are like, you see Middleton Plantation, mm-hmm. and you see this plantation. Oh, such beautiful, beautiful areas, and and you know maybe we would go there and have picnics. I have done multiple weddings in these beautiful plantations, and I'm I, embarrassingly enough, it it probably wasn't until ten years ago where I, I knew what a plantation was, but it clicked. We're having a big wedding celebration in this beautiful surroundings, and it represents the darkest age of our country, maybe. And it, mm-hmm. it's just, it, it's, it's, it's a tough one. Like Robbie, did you tell me that you won't even do gigs now if it's at a? I, I don't know. I, I could have heard you wrong. Yeah, I had like an artistic struggle for sure because growing up in Charleston especially with revisionist history and and not actually putting tons of uh, emphasis on the dynamics of where we were going to be growing up, you were desensitized to a lot of things. Yeah. And so there's a few, I mean, Charleston's a big artistic city, as you probably know already, we would do these weddings at these plantations and I, I never really thought about it. I thought about it as an event space. But one of my friends who, who sings with me sometimes, um, she's in a different city. She's not from Charleston, but she's in a different city. She would sing in Charleston sometimes. She said, you know, I just decided I can't sing with that band anymore because we're singing at plantations and things like that. And I was like, I never really thought about that before, <laughs> you know? And like, and then I started thinking really after that, like just kind of the progression of it wasn't black people having weddings there. You yeah, know? No, I mean, I don't <laughs> think we, black people. we don't like that too much. Yeah. We, <laughs> it wasn't black people having weddings there. So then I started thinking, where is the money and the proceeds and the profit of these events going to. And it also wasn't to black people. And there, you know, so there's, there's lots of things like still slave quarters up on the plantations on a lot of them. So you have to, the, us, the entertainment, we still have to walk by it. We, we park behind them and still have to walk by it to perform. Thinking through those dynamics, yeah, um, definitely changed my heart for performing for those kinds of things. So. And think about how many apartment complexes and subdivisions are named plantation. Right. Wow. I, yeah. I mean, I remember See, I in Virginia, there's a lot of that stuff. You know, when I grew up and I'm like, living in a place named Plantation, Mm. that's just a kind of a weird feeling as you think about it. But then if you if it's all that, you know, you don't think about it. Sometimes you have to get out of it to be able to think about it in that kind of a way. Yeah. Just kind of like, okay, that's just what it is. Mm -hmm. But it's just it's so awkward. It's so peculiar. And slavery and race relations are so intertwined and so weird you know i think what you're saying robbie is is exactly my experience it's just so weird because it's intertwined all of the connections are there black Mm -hmm. and white they're separate but yet they're linked you know i had white people who would say that they're kin to me but they wouldn't say that publicly but it would be in these private spaces of course we would say that too in private spaces Mm -hmm. but not publicly so there was this weird this weirdness of where you can be as close as the fingers but yet, as Booker J. Washington, as separate as the, you know, as yeah. separate mm. as that as well. And I think it still is. 
Yeah. A nation that hasn't really ever dealt with that toughness. And I yeah. think all of us have to, you know, black folk too. We do too. Right. Absolutely. Um, have to Absolutely. find ways of addressing the difficulty. I, I often say if you're Asian and, you know, you were adopted from, you know, in America, you know, from, say, Korea, you can go back and claim that ancestry. Black folk have this interesting ancestry that we can't claim. Yeah. yeah. And, and do we want to, you know, it's, it's just so weird right. because it's who we are. And yet it sometimes pulls us apart. We're black, but we have these other identities that create who we are. For the first time in my life, I just realized my first job as a sophomore in high school was at a buffet restaurant, family owned, and it was called Plantation Quarters. Mm-hmm. And to this, this second, I realized... Oh, mm. plantation quarters yeah. is where I worked. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Unshakable faith of famous and little known African Americans from colonial times to present. Robbie, you're going to make fun of me because I'm going to attempt a Spanish word, but Abuelita, <laughs> is that grandma? Abuelita? Abuelita. Abuelita. <laughs> I interviewed a woman on here, Kat Armis, and she, she wrote a book called, say it again, Robbie. Abuelita. Abuelita theology. The The premise is we read Martin Luther. We read Billy Graham. We All these people we learn theology from. Why mm-hmm. in the world would we not tap into the Latino woman who scrubbed hotel bathroom floors for 50 years and through all of that time was seeking God? Like, I want to know what that faith looks like. And so when I was thinking about this book, I I don't know if I reached out to you, if you reached out to me, but yes, sir, I want to talk about this because I just think there's so much to learn from folks who went through stuff that I can't even wrap my mind around. And so you you basically have taken... I'm curious about the little known African Americans. Yeah. Like who who are some of them? You know, Cyrus and what are some of their stories? Would be one of the first ones and he was a he was actually a Quaker. Quaker African American. We don't think about black Quakers. He's a person in the in the colonial period in the seventeen hundreds. Um he's probably born to a white father or a slave enslaved mother. And for the first thirty some odd years of his life he's enslaved. He's promised his freedom at some point in time, but it doesn't come through. And that's one thing that we have to think about with slavery is that a lot of people were promised freedom that never came through. And so can you imagine, you know, you're told, I'm going to free you when I die. And when yeah. he dies, his children don't do it or something like that. And so these are the situations that slavery is not just about, you know, enslaved your whole life or you are freed. There are all these middling types of relationships, too, that have mm-hmm. tremendous impacts and hopes and hopes dashed. And so Cyrus Buster was a hope dashed. And for 10 to 15 years, he knew he should have been free, but he wasn't. He refuses to get married because he won't marry as a slave. He doesn't want to pass down that status to anybody. And since yeah. then he mm-hmm. gets his freedom. He's not angry about it. And he moves to Philadelphia, which is a tremendously, it was a liberal city for its time period. One might say liberal for the time period at that point. He's got a larger African-American community that he's working with. He helps to form the Free African Society, which is one of the first benevolent societies of African Americans to come together. It's actually the form. It's it's the institution that ends up leading to the AME Church. And again, he's a Quaker, but he's he's ecumenical as well. And then he starts to speak to other African Americans. He gives us one speech to people who are still enslaved. I think about what would a man like him, who's been freed, say to people who were still enslaved, but Pennsylvania, Philadelphia, Pennsylvania just passed a law that said that. Is a gradual abolition bill. So some of them may have been freed eventually, but some of them would not have. And so he's got this diverse audience of enslaved people, some free, some people who are going to be free, and some people who may never be free. And he's trying to instill hope in them Mm -hmm. and what it means to be, for his perspective, an American, because this is Mm -hmm. the revolutionary period. It's after the Revolutionary War. So we're defining American and what those American principles are. But he's also defining what it is to be a Christian to him. And so the ideas of forgiveness, but he then tells them to prepare for life. And I thought to myself, that's an interesting thing to do. You're a slave. You're, you're talking to slaves and he's saying, be prepared. And then he said, I was prepared 
because I was ready when I became free. And so I think the point that he was trying to say is sometimes enslavement can be physical enslavement, but it can also be mental enslavement. Yeah, absolutely. And so he's trying to liberate people who were not just physically enslaved, but who may also have been emotionally enslaved. And so I think that he's trying to say that even though I was enslaved, I was free spiritually. I was free emotionally. And I think that that's the point that that linked to me, that this brother could have the strength to share that. And how what a, what a statement that is today, because there are so many things today that we're not enslaved, although slavery still exists in some ways. We may be chained to certain things that right. are tying us up, our jobs, our emotions, our desire for conspicuous consumption. And then he's saying, you must be free spiritually and emotionally to be able to accept everything that's there for you. And yeah, so I and, think that that's just amazing if you think yeah, about and, it. And, and so. how applicable is that to every single Absol- person on the face of the earth? Absolutely. And what's interesting is when I think of the question, hey, what does it mean to be American? I doubt the majority of Americans, and, and I'm not even saying this as as anything necessary. Uh, it is a negative thing, but I, it's not like an insult to people because I, I probably put myself in the same category. Does my mind go to African Americans? Like, yeah. what does it mean to be uh, American? Is, is that does, one of our first? Is that one of our first go tos? No. It's and not. if it does, it goes to someone like King. Yeah. You know, it goes yeah. to people right. that we Man. know, and not to mm-hmm. people like Osiris Bustle, who I think really exhibited these tremendous values that mm-hmm. are true descendants of the more radical aspects of the American Revolution. And there were those, right? I mean, when you say life, liberty, pursuit of happiness, and you start to define that for what it truly means, Mm -hmm. it's the African-Americans in many ways who held that, that, that mirror up to America, who held on. Mm -hmm. So I had this chapter, Sons and Daughters of the American Revolution, in which I kind of define that it's the African-Americans of that generation after the revolution, in which there's kind of a conservative turn in America, in which the freedoms that were promised, you know, you have about a 15-year period after the American Revolution where more African-Americans are becoming free. You have some moves towards those kinds of things. And then it kind of shuts down. African-Americans kind of continuously hold to that. When King came to um, Washington, D.C. in 63, he speaks of the Declaration of Independence. He's not just picking something up. He is picking up something that has existed throughout African-American history from that period up until then. He's not reclaiming something. He's claiming something that's existed from the whole period. African-Americans held that up. And so in a sense, when you speak of, I won't say that we're the only people that have held it up, but we certainly are the people who have held that flag, if you will, up close personally, even though we have not had the opportunities to benefit or have that privilege as much as others it's been something that has been aspired to. And so for me, Cyrus Bustle is one who is, a you know, some people know about her, but she's a black woman in the 1820s and the 1830s, one of the first black women to ever, you know, go on this public circuit of abolitionist speakers. And, and she's not just challenging white people to be better. She's challenging black men to be better. Yeah. Um, and, and she's claiming her, her descendancy of the revolution that she's a woman and, and she has these rights as well. And yet she's also doing it in a religious perspective. So she's defining herself spiritually as a child of God, as an equal, as somebody who's in this milieu trying to work through very difficult spaces in which people didn't talk about being a woman and being black at that point in time. It was just yeah, being right. black. Intersectionality is not something that was talked about, but she's mm. talking about those kinds of things. Yeah. And, and she's exploring them in a way in which, you know, was dangerous for the time period. But yet she's taking that chance. I think about her faith and if she could have faith in God and belief in hope and community and you read her and she's a positive thinker, if she could, what's happening to us when we say that we our lives are so horrific? This is a woman who she was living a decent life at one point, but her husband died and she lost everything because she was cheated out of it. And yet she's an extraordinarily intelligent woman and she was cheated. Yeah. And it yeah. shows you how fragile black life was then. But it's ironic because she could fall out of the middle class so quickly. And yet today, 
we see which groups of people fall more quickly out of the middle class. It's African-Americans that our status is so precarious. And so the past really holds us up to recognizing some of the things that haven't changed that much. And it gives us a window to understand it and also sometimes to deal with it, to to reconcile with. Just to make sure when we when we're talking the the faith of these brave men and women. I'm assuming this is Christian faith. This is Christian faith in this so, sense, yes. So what I'm curious about is I, I'm, ass, I'm assuming it was picked up from Americans, like they didn't have Christian faith in, in Africa. So They did. Some of the first Africans who came to um, the Americas had already been um, introduced to the Christian gospel, gotcha. um, but not not all of them, not many of them, but some of them had. Some of them were Muslim as well. And so it's a very diverse group of Africans who, mm-hmm. black people who end up in America. A lot of the, but it's really this first and the second great awakenings in this 18th century and the early 19th centuries in which you see the majority of African Americans converting to the Christian faith. Now, so mm-hmm. my question about that is how, how did, those people hear Paul's instructions on treating your master properly. Yeah. I don't understand how you would walk in a Christian faith that seemed, according to the white man, seemed to support slavery. I, I think that's a very that's a very important question. And I think with African Americans, they saw the differences in what their master was saying and how the master was trying to some African Americans did have the ability to read and they you know, how do you hide? How do you hide the Exodus story? You know, God obviously wants them to be free. And he also wanted the Israelites to learn from that experience. So consistently throughout the Bible, it's remember who did this, who brought you out. And so it's completely hammered in. But so you've got Paul's declarations of be obedient. But at the same time, that same Paul is talking in his letter to Philemon, treat this slave Onesimus as more than a slave, but as a dear brother. You also have declarations of, of things that God is not a respecter of persons. And, and we see the enslaved people and African-Americans picking up on those kinds of verses of where God does not show preference to anybody. And so if you think of how it must have felt to someone like Phyllis Wheatley, who's brought over here enslaved at eight or 10 years of age, who doesn't know anything about her past, and yet she is introduced to a God who's not a respecter of persons. And that, that you know, you conflate that with this other pro-slavery ideology. You can see which side she's picking up from. And that's a very radical side because there are very radical aspects of the Christian gospel. You know, and sometimes it's hidden under what the master was teaching and trying to hide away from the slave. But I think that one of the most interesting things about it is how People who were enslaved and free African-Americans took that gospel and they, I won't say they made something different out of it, but they opened it up to a more evangelical and equal way, if that makes sense. That they they opened up the gospel for its more progressive underpinnings. They, they opened it up and they brought it back, in a sense, to the ancient church um, where people shared with one another. And so... They almost did for the gospel what African-Americans were also doing for the ideology of America and, and, and bringing it to an almost pure status and creating their own denomination. You think of the AME church. When African-Americans are creating that, they're creating a separate denomination, not because they want to, but because they almost have to, to be free. And so mm-hmm. freedom and liberation are all baked into this faith that they're, that they're part of. And yet at the same time, it's also a faith in which they're believing in forgiveness. They're believing mm-hmm. in moving forward, not forgetting, but also moving forward. And I know sometimes in our society we say, well, how can you forgive? And what's the benefit of that? Well, it also releases you. And it's not just doing something for them, but it's also doing something for you and saying you have no control over me. And so when you're controlling your churches, when you're controlling your institution, in many cases, this is the only institution they have, it becomes very important. So I think that that's how they could take up this gospel that was introduced to them because what they took up was not the gospel that was introduced to them. They were introduced to something that they took something away from it and they explored it, I would argue, more deeply to get the real meaning of the gospel, the fullness of the gospel, and they offer that to the world. As you were talking, it kind of just reminded me of the feeling of being in church growing up. And it felt 
like it illuminated hope, you know? Yeah. And, and I think that that is something that hope gives you this resilience that I've found in African-Americans in the United States, particularly like hope is a fuel that has really driven African-Americans over generations, something to be grounded on. And I think it was interesting because that's one of the, probably the core feelings that I remember taking from my faith as a kid. And then when I got older in faith, I would say like the hope was instilled, but it w- I didn't hear it as much as, as I kind of traveled into other denominations, other, other cultures and things like that. And, and actually my wife and I were just talking about this this past weekend. We had a preacher that came and preached and I said, you know, when he speaks, I feel the hope and I feel the love and I feel the, the freedom and, and almost funness of being a Christian. And I feel like if you're enslaved, you need something to target your mind towards. Yeah. You need something. If you're, if you're focusing on survival and, you know, if you're focused on all the bad things that are happening around you, that's crushing. That's depressing. But that was one thing that always marked me was the resilience of, of people who persisted through adversity and, and how that fuel kind of helped them to arrive to it. For place. sure. And, and I, I think I'm, think I'm stating the obvious, but asking it's a, we're talking what hundreds of thousands of Africans were born into slavery, thrown into a field. And that was it. Like that, that was their life. Here I am upset about a flat tire and there's people born into slavery and that's, that's it. And just imagine your, everybody that you know is born into that status. You know, your parents, your grandparents, your great grandparents, your great, great grandparents. So everything that you know is tied into that. And then you have this gospel that says God does not respect you because of who you are or who you were born. He sees you equally. That's transformative in, mm-hmm. in the highest essence. That transforms the power of the master that the master has over you, that there's somebody greater than him that sees you and him as equal. And so that changes the whole trajectory. It gives you, I would argue, a mental leg up when the society is trying to cut your leg off, sometimes literally cut your yeah. foot off. You know, that gospel, that kind of message, I think, was needed. That hope was needed. And even after slavery, with sharecropping and convict lease systems and all of those kinds of things that emerged in the South, and it wasn't easy in the North either, that hope was necessary. And I remember when I grew up in church, that was the place where I learned how to speak publicly. That was the place where I felt a community. Um, I had my community at home, but also those same people were in the church with me, encouraging me. Yeah. Um, sometimes when... The community, the larger community didn't. It was that church community that was holding me up. And so it just wasn't a place of doctrine and dogma. It was right. a place of community and love and gospel. And we could be free. We could express ourselves in an environment that was quite different from sometimes the outside world. That inside of this space was a zone of where you felt free. You mm-hmm. felt somebody. Mm-hmm. You felt encouraged that you could express your doubts of life and not be judged for that. Whereas sometimes our society is highly judgmental. Mm-hmm. I felt inside those walls, those four walls of the church, this was a place that I could be who I was. This was a place that I could feel comfortable, that I could be encouraged. And it was the same church that my ancestors yeah. helped to found right after slavery was over. So you had that whole tie to the past and you could feel yeah. it. You know, you could go out and see the graveyard and see your your great great grandparents, and you could see those stones. And so it was a very spiritual environment. Yeah, that was very calming and relaxing. That tied you to the past. Yeah, I I touched down in in Ghana with a team from Habitat for Humanity. This would have been in two thousand and four. And it was a pretty diverse group to, to go build some houses. And one of the African American gentlemen, when he got off the plane, he basically got on the ground and kissed the ground. And at that time, I was like, that's pretty dramatic. But <laughs> and now I'm like, ah, there's got to be something to that, especially with what you said. You know, you feel, you know, one of the things about being African American is that we sometimes, where do we come from? And, and right. that was something that we didn't know. Now, my ancestors, mm-hmm. I knew where they were enslaved, but I also had free African American ancestors too, and I knew more about them. But so many African Americans, they hit a block, you know, try to go back beyond 1865, and they just don't know. And there's a feeling of longing. You know, I remember when I was in school, we would have to do these genealogies, and it was people to ask, well, who is this and who is this and who is this? And the white kids would have all these elaborate genealogies, 
And for us, we didn't have those. And, you know, we kind of felt out of place because we didn't know who we were. One of the reasons why I majored in history was to find those answers. Mm -hmm. And even though I had more answers than most, it was my search to find out more about who I was. And I think that for the African-American, that's a search that we still have. And that's why I said we have these different pieces of our ancestry that we've been prevented, sometimes internally and sometimes externally, from being able to claim or being part of. As W.B. Du Bois talked about, it kind of creates a double consciousness. It sometimes makes us feel one foot in and another foot outside, but not fully being able to embrace the fullness of being African-American or being a Black American and what that actually means. I do a lot of interviews. One thing that I have encountered, and, and, I'm, and I'm, try- I'm really trying to learn through this, is obviously as someone who wants to prioritize Jesus's teachings, I, I'm all about, you know, especially in this cancel culture and, and all this polarity, I'm always talking about love your enemies and forgiving and turn the other cheek and and all of that. Well, I've encountered some people and they're either minorities or they're folks that are basically speaking on behalf of minorities. Those tendencies of mind as as far as love, love, love are kind of challenged a little bit. Now, I do appreciate the challenge of that's easier for you. Like that's easier for you to say that. But I've actually gotten places with people where it seems like they're trying to make love a, a, a gray area. H- how do I need to be careful as a white person by keep saying love, love, love and love your enemy? And does it get to a point where you have to second guess what love means? Or is that kind of <laughs> like to you guys? Is that like, nah, it's pretty black and white there. Love is in, in the English language is very vague. There's in other languages, they usually have different types of love and different levels of love, you know? And so I think sometimes also in cultures, words become offensive after a certain point. And so sometimes I think that if our goal is to be loving, we can be sensitive with those changes, with the changes of the tide. I'm not going to use the N word now. If like our actual goal is to try to share love, it might not be in necessarily that language, but it might be in that action or love might be like listening to someone's story I would say restoration of value to a person, their voice, uh, who they are, what they do. I think that brings a lot of restoration. Yeah. So take Malcolm X, for instance, and and I'm I'm not nearly as educated on all of these figures. I wouldn't guess that he was motivated by love for all humanity. And I don't think any of us on this call would doubt his contributions. Was, Was he motivated by love for humanity? But I think Malcolm X also expressed experience of change towards the end of his life, too. And I'm not an expert on him, but Malcolm X of 1960 was different than Malcolm X right before he died. And he had experienced a, a transformation, even in his faith in Islam, moving towards more traditional Islam than the nation of Islam. And so he had made some changes, too, for me. And I, I really appreciate what Robbie said. To me, love, you can say sometimes love becomes an excuse to not change or to just accept things. And so love me, love me, love me. But sometimes love can be tough. Sometimes love can be harsh. Sometimes it's like love of a parent. Sometimes a parent can't just say, don't jump in front of that child. Don't jump in front of that that bus. (laughs) Sometimes a parent has to yank the child back. I do not believe in corporal punishment, but sometimes a parent has to yank the child back. And I think that For me, love means sometimes being able to express difficult concepts and say, I don't agree with that. If you just say, love me and love me for who I am, but you also must open yourself up to how the other person feels with that. And so sometimes Mm -hmm. we say the word love and we don't expect to get any kind of pushback because we're not thinking about how the other person feels. We must always interpret what the other person is thinking Because that's, if we love them, love is two ways. It must come both ways. Mm -hmm. If we love them, then we must also have empathy for what they're feeling. Mm -hmm. And so if I just say, love me, I must also say, what do you think? And so on issues of race, I think it's important for white people who are white to understand the African-American experience and why African-Americans feel that way. Right. Mm -hmm. And so when you say, well, that was so long ago. Why would you know? See, why I hate not that I'm ask laughing. a black like, person, "How do you feel?" That's that white way? privilege for me to laugh yeah. at. By the way, that's my white privilege mm-hmm. that I just snickered at that. But you, <laughs> you get what I'm trying talk. to say. Ask a black person how they feel. That's right. one of the things in this love thing that we almost never say. 
Black mm-hmm. people never really get asked how we feel about this. We're often told how we should feel. Right. Yeah. So, And also, sometimes it comes from the left, too. Because mm-hmm. sometimes people on the left, progressive left, expect Black people to be macho progressive. Right. And so they expect you to be more liberal, and this often happens politically, than some Black people actually are. And they want mm-hmm. to create you in this, you know, radical, mega angry black person. Yeah. And so on both sides, the left and the right, I think would do well to listen to how black people feel and recognize the diversity within the black community. Because I think on both sides, there's a lot of lack right. of understanding just how diverse black people are. So, Robbie, I was talking to Lynn the other day, and we were, we were talking about all sorts of stuff along these lines. I had just released an episode of a former Clemson star who wrote a book that basically said that he's he's done with white churches for good. So we, we talked about tons of stuff, and I you know I told her how much of a help you've been and other people in my life. And after after we talked, she was she's like, so what what are you what are you going to do? And I was like, what do you mean? <laughs> well, I mean, you, you you said that you think everybody has blind spots. So so what's your plan? And it, it, it kind of, I was like, oh, okay. Uh, one thing is I'm going to read this guy's book. I, I think that to me, and I, I am not a poster boy child for this at all, but that seems to be a genuine act of love by saying, maybe I don't understand. I love you. And because I love you, I'm going to try to understand. Right. I'm going to, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm going to do my homework. And so, yeah. instead of constantly saying, teach me, teach me, teach me, there's people that have written books for crying out loud. But that seems to be a loving gesture is I'm going to learn. I, I'm going to try yes. to take in. And as a, as a black person, even as a black artist, sometimes you have to forgive what people say as they're saying it, you know, they don't <laughs> Robbie, even know you have you done that with me. Just once twice. <laughs> <laughs> you know, there was at least once <laughs> <laughs> we we're, we're like best friends. So like, I, I, you know, so I always know your heart, you know, but just in general, like all day long, it's like you're forgiving people, but they don't know that you're forgiving them. They don't know the impact of the words, you know, and sometimes you have that relational credibility where you can have those conversations. And Joey, you know, you're always so good about this, better than most people in my life about texting me later and saying, hey, when I said this, how did this make you feel? I apologize if this made you feel this way. Please be honest with me. You know, but most people don't do that. The other thing is, too, you know, African-Americans you can consider them as a collective. There's that dynamic, but there's also the individual collective and each person has a context. I, I learned this with my wife, you know, like we're, we're, we're only six years into marriage. It's, it's crazy the conversations that we have because she has a completely different context than I do. And so things that affect her, it takes me a while to understand them sometimes, but because of that foundation of love and wanting to draw closer and wanting that healing in the relationship and wanting her to be the best her she can be, she wants me to be the best me that I can be, then I know that forgiveness and love is a requirement for that. As we persist, we get stressed, you know, and we we lean into those places. We now find ourselves grow, like we've grown. We've grown through the process and we've experience beauty that we would not have experienced if we just said, ah, we're just too different, you know, and this isn't necessarily worth it to relate to somebody who's close to me. One of the things and one of the reasons why I dislike the idea of canceling people is because, as you were saying, Joey, we all have these blind spots. I have them. And sometimes when you come from a a certain group, you may be sometimes moved to think that we don't have a blind spot, but I have them. And, and, I, and I'm trying to find them. And sometimes I don't know where they are sometimes. Mm. And it takes, you know, my wife is Filipino. And I my had to learn. And I learned from her, they don't see race in the same way that we see race. And they see it as a class dynamic. And I have kind of been lulled to sleep on class dynamics. Mm. And so I didn't, you know, I might have a blind spot on issues of class. I had to be open to that. I would hope that the person who's looking at me wouldn't just think, oh, I got to cancel him because he doesn't get it. I'm open to learning. And I think that that's what love is, is open to learning, being open to maybe maybe not knowing everything that you think you do and not being arrogant. Uh, And for me, that's my faith, too, is that the more that I learn, the more I realize that I have to learn. Being open to that and learning and sometimes learning from people who think differently than you do. Phyllis Wheatley, who's an important part of my book, she liked George, a guy, a preacher named George Whitfield, who was a slave owner. But she picked the pieces out of what 
he said that she could accept, but she didn't completely cancel him. Jeez, and I man. think that for me, that's an interesting lesson. Are we going to say that Phyllis Wheatley was a fool because she didn't cancel? I wouldn't call Phyllis Wheatley a fool on any level. <laughs> or that she was just lulled to sleep by white supremacy? I wouldn't call her that either. There's something there that you can get. And I can learn something from almost anybody. As you were talking, I realized the predicament that I feel like I'm in. And that is, I don't agree with cancel culture. But what am I going to say to, let's just say, a black woman who says, this person, bad for African Americans, their message, toxic, blah, 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 blah. And I don't mean that in a disparaging way, blah, 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 blah. Canceled. And I, I don't, I really don't agree with cancel culture of any kind, maybe a uh, career cancel, like yeah. let's don't listen to this person anymore. But do I have legs to stand on as a Christian, white, straight male to be against can- cancel culture? Or is that one of those things that I just like, you know what, you can, you can be quiet about being against cancel culture. Does that make sense? Like it kind of feels like who am I to, to say cancel culture is no good? I, I agree. I think that sometimes like when we do headline titles, sometimes it can get dicey because things can be so nuanced, obviously, um, with individual context. But, but yes, I think that the idea behind cancel culture means that change is inevitable. Like change, change is not possible. I should say that a person can't change. And I don't think that that's true. I don't think, I think that if we believe that as our foundation, then that changes a lot of things for us. That changes the gospel, that changes lots of things. And so I think that people can change. I just think that sometimes, People might need more restraints. I think sometimes people are causing more harm than good. So maybe some of those things need to change or maybe we need to be a little bit more specific instead of saying canceled. Maybe let's express our thoughts and maybe some tracks to run on. So that way, people who are receiving information from these people that they wouldn't continue in those bad patterns. Like, for example, there was a there's a a very well-known preacher that was, I believe, canceled. And, and I was just at a program where he was one of the keynote speakers and I was just like, really, I was really surprised that he was on there, but I started thinking about this. I was like, okay, well, should this guy be canceled? I mean, he, he technically has been canceled, but other people have seen value in him. And it really made me wrestle with that as well. It's like, I didn't necessarily want to <laughs> sit and listen to him at the same time. It really made me reflect, okay, how would I want that in my, in my case? Like if, if I was repentant about something, would I want to be discredited for the rest of my life? Or do I think that there's redemption there? That's the important part is the idea of redemption. But also, mm-hmm. to me, as a historian, I deal with a lot of difficult people to investigate. Because you're looking mm-hmm. at them sometimes 200 years later, and you're looking mm-hmm. at their views in that context. I can cancel all of these folk. <laughs> and, and, exactly. and at the same time, I, I, I recognize sometimes when we cancel, it's almost out of an arrogance of our own that we think that we know everything and that we're the only ones who know what's right. I'm not that confident in myself that I can cancel somebody in that kind of a way. But also, I also recognize that there can be change. And and, and historically, we've seen people changing from the Bible on up, even before, that there are so many examples of people that have changed But to change, you have to have engagement. A person doesn't change unless they are engaged with somebody. So one of the reasons why we have this polarization today, I think, is because left is over here and right is over here, and they're both canceling each other. Even though if they were to engage, maybe there would be more listening across those boundaries that would pull people more towards that center. But instead, I don't agree with you, so I'm canceling you. I don't want to read this, so I don't want to read this, so let's go burn this book. Mm-hmm. And, and and this is dangerous. And both sides are almost speaking the same language of canceling in an odd yeah. way, yeah. which mm-hmm. to me is unfortunate. So I would say as a as a black, I'm straight, I'm Christian. I don't like the idea of canceling. And I would agree that you have the right, Joey, to say that as well, because mm-hmm. it's a lack of engagement. And we yeah. must always engage. For me, when I'm in a classroom, I can't cancel my students. I have to engage with them. And I and have it, to take them wh- from where they are and, and, and move them. I can't make them think what I want them to think. I have to help them think what they feel guided to think. I think it's hilarious that, Rob, I, I don't know about your, your kids, Carrie, but Robbie. We don't have our kids. We have a dog. Gotcha, gotcha. <laughs> he so sees our himself kid, a son. There you <laughs> go. So, Robbie, our kids will never 
hear the word canceled like you and I did, like it, when a show sucked, it got canceled. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Just because it wasn't a high quality, now they hear canceled. It's like, oh, they, they did something wrong. They did something wrong. Right. So <laughs> the Super Bowl show this year, I don't think I've talked to you about it yet, Robbie, but I, I choked up. Mm-hmm. I think a lot of it had to do with just I'm getting old and so I'm <laughs> sentimental and that music reminds me of yeah. old times and I see these guys that I just love their music and now they're older and then they're yeah. killing it and it was just a great show it, re- it really moved me i i'm what would you guys say to white people and even black people like like y'all said it's not a homogenous group who would be like why are we celebrating these thugs you know these people are are clearly historically in gangs and promote gang violence like i don't see it that way but how would you guys respond to that cuz i know in the in the write up Carrie, you even included how chance the rapper and kanye west benefited and influenced from these old schoolers and how do you mix the two and and believe me this is for you can ask robbie this is not a jab at hip-hop please don't take my hip-hop away (laughs) but tell me how 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 should my parents see the super bowl show i would argue that they should look at it in the same way they look at rock and roll i mean what does the meaning of rock and roll means it's a sexual innuendo in and of itself um so (laughs) I, I Will mean, you be my mentor? <laughs> you know, th- th- that's what rock and roll means. And rock and roll comes out of what are the antecedents of rock and roll? It's the black music, you know, R&B and, and soul and, and, and um, the blues was formed. What's more raunchy than the blues was? I mean, Robert Johnson, you know, I crossroads blues. I went to the crossroads and I made a deal with the devil to play the to play the guitar like I can play. I mean, you think about Ma Rainey and Bessie Smith and the things that they were doing, you know, and the things that they were singing about. It was raunchy. Rock and roll was raunchy. Jazz, the old school jazz, where did it get its, where did it start the brothels of New Orleans? (laughs) Modern music got some thug in it, if you really want to put it like that. And it's not clean. And so when you think of, if you got the Rolling Stones playing at the Super Bowl, what's different than having them? than having mm-hmm. Snoop Dogg or Dr. Dre or whatnot. Because mm-hmm. they're coming out of musical genres that have somewhat been anti-mainstream. Yep. That's what made it interesting to people. Yep. And, 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 and hip-hop and rap was not that different. It was just kind of reclaiming the old radicalism of early rock and roll. I yep. mean, Elvis Presley was considered radical for his time that they cut him off because they didn't want to show his legs. Right. Dancing like that. <laughs> if you think of Elvis in Memphis, he's hanging out in black clubs. I mean, so this is a different kind of the 50s and the, and the 80s, the late 80s, were people searching for something that they found in a different type of music that sounded different, that was lyrically different, and that mm-hmm. was expressingly different. And so that's kind yeah. of how I see Snoop and comparing him to all the others. It's yeah. kind of ironic that now it's mainstreamed. Do we see it as radical today as it was back then? In the same Mm -hmm. way, is rock and roll seen as radical today as it was back then? I do note that they didn't sing some of their more interesting songs. (laughs) I wanted to get nothing but a G thing or or a Dre Day or (laughs) that one from Deep Deep Cover. I was very happy. And I I do need to, I want to rewatch the Super Bowl show. I think I've watched it four times now. (laughs) Yeah, I was going to say, I I will rewatch it a lot because when I first saw it, there was like some kids around and like lots of noise. And, you know, usually I don't go to Super Bowl parties because my caveat is that whenever the Super Bowl show is happening, the volume will be turned up and everyone will be quiet. (laughs) Like, you know, but that's not usually the case. And then before you watch the halftime show, you ask everybody, hey, who scored the most goals so far? (laughs) I mean, the game was not, the the game was not a great game. I admit that. Right, right. Right, right. Yeah. So, but as an artist, I was so happy to see who they selected because I think this is kind of the first time, probably in entertainment history of the Super Bowl halftime show, that they had predominantly black artists that didn't need to be opened up with by like a white yeah. rock band or pop artist that was a crossover artist. Like, this was, this to me felt very, very different than Super Bowl halftime shows in the past. Like, you don't need Maroon 5 to play a set yeah. first or Coldplay before introducing yeah. Bruno and Beyonce. That, to me, was huge because, number one, it's one of the biggest platforms uh, in music is that Super Bowl halftime show. Those artists got a chance to be spotlighted in that 
collectively unified. There were so many dynamics that were happening in the show. That's why I really want to rewatch it because there's so many things like the dancers, they were making a statement. The different rappers were making a statement. The the set was a statement on display there. You know, other really other just dynamics artistically that I think I, I think it was a moment that America needed to celebrate for sure as a black yeah. artist. And in the wake of a I will just say like appropriation <laughs> as well, appropriation of art, like of black art, I will say, like I was happy to see that black yep. artists would be able to represent their own music right. and to benefit from that. I could you go guys, on I, about that. I was, I was culturally conditioned as a, as growing up in the South when I saw that picture of the black athletes on the Olympic stand with their black power fists raising the air. Mm. That was bad. Yeah. Anytime right. I was around white people and we saw that, it was like, like, that's just what I thought. I was like, oh, okay. So those guys are being bad. And so, so I've come a long way with this, right. but let, let me frame it this way. I know my white answer to this. What has Kanye West done for this country? Or what has Kanye West done for African-Americans? Or what is Kanye West? Maybe it's, I don't know if we could go deeper than his art, but how would y'all answer that question? Does it have to be Kanye West? All I was right. about to say. Switch up. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I think for me, Kanye, it's it's still to be determined because I don't know where the story ends. There are some things going on there right now. I, I think he's struggling. I, I really, it bothers me when people mock him right now because he's obviously struggling with some issues. And yeah. as an African-American man, those kinds of things, there's a long legacy of certain illnesses and things being not treated that we don't deal with. It's easier for them to deal with than others. I, I don't like to kick a person when he's down, yeah, per se. Definitely. But I do think that a leg the legacy of people like Kanye or Dr. Dre or Snoop Dogg and Kendrick Lamar uh, and, and Kanye will be interesting because they, they show us these are people that kind of peeled away a layer of their lives. Mm-hmm. And they showed us what these two Americas that Martin Luther King talked about. You know, Martin Luther King often talked mm-hmm. about two Americas. Mm-hmm. And hip-hop and rap showed us that second America at its best. It showed us dirty image. The life, liberty, pursuit of happiness, it wasn't available to everybody. And, and right. this urban renewal and or this, this urban, you know, we're talking urban renewal. Then we were talking white flight and we were talking about urban decay and those jobs that had left and gone to the suburbs had left people in the communities that Dr. Dre and Snoop Dogg lived in demoralized and debased. And Kendrick Lamar as well. He's the, the recipient of that because these are the crack years. To me, the, the artistry of it is that it showed America a window for what it was. Mm. In the same way that King showed us a window, in the same way that Phyllis Wheatley showed us a window. And so yeah. they're doing the same things that the others were doing, maybe not in the same kind of language that we like. It's not mm-hmm. classical language, but nor was rock and roll, nor was the blues. It was expressing yeah. their feelings at the most basic level. You know, when you think of black church and the screams and the guttural feelings of crying mm-hmm. out, where does that come from? It comes from the soul. Yeah. And I think that that's what hip hop does too. It comes from the soul of pain. Yeah. And and in many places that would be appreciated. But when it's showing a face of America, it becomes dangerous. Yeah. But yeah. I think that that's the beauty of hip hop is that it expressed to a generation of Americans this mm. other America. This America yeah. where one in three black men born at a certain point in time could expect to go to prison sometime in their lifetime. Or a mm. black man like me, I didn't expect to live to be 30. I mm. thought I'd be dead. And I think many black men my age, and I'm 46, would have felt that way. Definitely. And our lives were different than many other lives. And we identified with that music because it spoke to us the anger and the bitterness. Now, maybe I grew up out of a lot of that anger and bitterness, but I get where it comes from because yeah. I felt it too. And, and and I understood how it felt to be seen as a nobody. That's what it means to me. Sorry for going yep. off on a tangent. Yeah, no, that's great. Yeah. That's great. I I, I love uh, y'all. Probably haven't heard it yet, especially <laughs> Robbie. I listen to more hip hop, but the new Kanye West, I just love it. And I think what's so crazy is a, a Christ like someone who was brought up in the Christian rap scene would have never been able to pull this off. But here you have Kanye West, one of the most famous artists 
maybe of all time. And he's got a song that a couple of songs where clearly someone is speaking in tongues. Like that is yeah. what you're supposed to hear as someone speaking with spiritual languages. And I'm like, this is a mainstream pop mm. rap album <laughs> and, yeah. and showcasing speaking in tongues. And theologically, I go back and forth what I think about that. It feels anointed to me. Like I'm like, praise mm. Jesus. It's like a really moving thing. <laughs> so as I'm talking to you, thinking about cancel culture and polarity, it, it's like, man, the, the people that we should be learning from when it comes to whether or not to cancel people and, and how to love and everything are, are the very people that were persecuted the most. Like, that's who I want to listen to. Well, who did Jesus this go to? Exactly. Mm-hmm. Right. Right. And I, I watched a documentary on, it was called F, I think it's MLK slash FBI. It's a remarkable documentary. Mm-hmm. And Martin Luther King, like, I, I, I used to think that it was just kind of like, a, oh, yeah, just love your enemies. His thought processes were so advanced and meticulous. Like it wasn't just this love. It was and here the thousand reasons yeah. why philosophically, theologically. Mm-hmm. I mean, I was I was blown away. Duh, Joey. Martin Luther King's a very smart man. We've interviewed I'm sure Carrie, you've heard of Westboro Baptist, those crazy uh-huh. crazy folks. Yeah. So we had their head guy on the show about two weeks ago. One of my listeners, he's he's a he's a gay guy, and we were in a very interesting conversation. I say he's gay because uh, if if you know the website of Westboro Baptist, yeah, they it's, uh, yeah, it's pretty they, offensive. Right. He actually was was very happy with the the grace that we showed those guys or that guy. The question that him and I got to texting back and forth is: It possible that KKK? Westboro Baptist, all of these organizations are misled Christians. Like, is that something that we have to grapple with? That those could be brothers and sisters who are just grossly misguided? They're certainly misguided. Yeah. I know they're misguided, but would you put, and it may not even be an important question, but do you think a Christian can get so off the mark that they fall into horrible stuff like that? It could be, it could be true. I was, I was just reading, maybe it was John 15 or something where some, sometimes people do believe that they're believers, but if they're not obeying the commands of Jesus, then is it, is it true belief? Number one. I mean, sometimes I think we just have to ask within ourselves that question, but also I would just say like within my context of America, yeah, I think that there's a lot of Christians that do pretty terrible things, even if it's not the KKK. I think that sometimes we miss the mark. And sometimes it's pretty, a pretty terrible missing of the mark. And, and a lot of times we'll put it in the name of Jesus or in the name of something else. And um, I think we see it probably every day. And a lot of them, yes, do claim to be believers. And a lot of them probably are. They might, in, in their process of growth, may not have seen certain things. And I, I pray for the repentance and the revelation of what it truly means to love God and love people. Because I think if that is truly the base, you'll see lots of change. You'll see those organizations dwindle because they'll start to see that this doesn't match up with what God has called us to do. But I mean, I've said this recently so many times to people is that in the Bible, you've got Christians that are stoning people to death and they think that that's God's response. Right. You know, like they're they're doing that in the name of Jesus. They're killing people by throwing rocks at them. So (laughs) it 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 blows my mind. Blows my mind. It's not my role to judge a person whether they're Christian or not. But I do know. I think it was maybe Saint Augustine who talked about the inner church and the outer church, and that there are people who claim to be in the church, but they're really ultimately not really within the church. And so I'll I'll leave it at that. For me, sometimes when we're young in our faith, we're more judgmental, and then as we grow in our faith. As we learn more, we become more open-minded. Mm-hmm. And I'd like to think that some of these people are kind of like babies. And so they're more attuned to, this person is wrong, this person is wrong, this person can't yeah. do this, and that, 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 the judgmental aspects. And I think that sometimes that ultimately takes over in some people, over the other aspects of love, caring, empathy. doesn't mean that everything is right in life, but yeah. it, it certainly means that we must be more understanding and recognize that we too sin and fall short. And I think mm-hmm. that when we realize that we all are sinners, who am I to get up and judge somebody else when I'm a sinner myself? Right. And I think that that's the message that the more I learn, the more I, I, I get that. And yet at the same time, I've struggled through with depression in my life. Same Sometimes thing. it's not the church that has helped me. It's been the church that's pushed me out and say, I didn't pray hard enough. Yeah. And so I wouldn't say that those people weren't Christian. They just didn't understand the fullness 
of things. I think for me, that suffering that I went through gave me a different perspective. You know, W.B. Du Bois talked about the Negro, or he said the word Negro, but the African-American was kind of a seventh son. Mm-hmm. And in mythology, the seventh son is born with this these a, a difference. And because of the difference, they had a different perspective. And I think that that's the beauty of being sometimes yeah. a little different, is that you have a different perspective. For Du Bois, the African-American, a different perspective of America. Well, maybe mm-hmm. different Christians have different perspectives of it. The people in my book had different perspectives, but it gave them something that was missing. And I think that that's what's missing from those groups that you're saying, is that they're all speaking to each other. They've yeah. never got out. Right. They're in their that's... own silos. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But when you get out a little bit, or you're a little bit different, right. or you don't feel that way, it gives you a different perspective that you might not think that way if you were that way. Right. Yeah, for sure. Dr. Lattimore, this has been so unreal. Good. So unshakable faith. When when people read this, would you say taking the historical accounts and then adding some of your philosophical applications? Hey, how how do we how do we take these stories and, and apply? Like, what will people get out of your book? Yeah, it's it's a history, but it's also a, a exploration of that faith for the present. And so we're looking at these people, not just for how they were in the past, but what can we take from them and learn from them? Because I think one of the things that we can do better is to learn from peoples of the past. You know, we got this great documentary on Lincoln that's out right now from the History Channel, and we're learning from him, you know, learning from his mistakes, but also learning from the things that he did right. Right. Um, And he was a man that was willing to change. We got to get back to that. And so I think that this story of Unshakable Faith is is a book of showing how black people of the past went through these obstacles. One, they, many of them were able to overcome under horrific situations, which gives us hope. Two, how they built a community under unordinate circumstances, which shows us the importance of community to help live stable lives and mm-hmm. fruitful lives, but also the importance of hope in tying all of the threads together, that no matter who you are, where you come from, You've got to have some type of hope. Even those people in the hip hop, they had the mm-hmm. hope that they could do something because that's how they started it. You know, I think yeah. about Snoop Dogg and Dre and, you know, we can go back to Grandmaster Flash and all of them. Mm-hmm. They believed in what they were doing mm-hmm. or else they wouldn't have done it. There's so many people in the world who have a talent, but they've been convinced that it's not useful. And so I hope that Unshakable Faith is a way of showing that your talents, not number one, are entrusted by God who knew you before you were even born, who gave you that. But two, live it out. You never know it might become something. I'm going too far, but I'll say this. One of my problems with how we've thought recently in this thinking that there's nothing that African-Americans can do to change things, this ideology that we're, we're where we are and this is this, is it is absent of hope. And, and I worry about that nihilistic type way perspective of saying that there's nothing that black people can do to change things. I worry about that for what it does to African-American hopes. Yep. And I worry that that might be part of why you see suicide rates and depression rates and others increasing so tremendously in our community because yep. of a lack of hope. My book is about hope, too. And I think that that's the tie that threads it. it all together. That's cool. And it sounds like it's a great yeah. resource for blacks and whites. Blacks, oh, you- whites, anybody. It's written from a Christian perspective, but it's not only for people who are Christian, I think right. it's not a judgmental book. We're not sitting up this condemning people. It's just an exploration mm-hmm. and an introduction to, you know, this is what their lives were like. So it's ecumenical, I would argue as well. Did y'all like how Eminem was the token white boy? 